The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Good evening, everybody. Um, well, just so pleased to welcome Santi Caro uh, here. Uh, he's had a number of uh, a number of times to speak here at, at Common Ground. Um, Santi Caro was a monk in Thailand for many years um, under Ajahn Buddhadasa, and he was also his translator. Um, and since being back in the United States, um, he lives in Liberation Park, which is a beautiful land in South. Western Wisconsin, quiet retreat place, which I'll, I'll leave the website on the board in case you're interested in finding out about that. I really think it's valuable that um, you know, someone like Santi Carla has both a lead perspective and also a monastic perspective uh, that he brings to his teaching. So thank you so much. Good evening. Yeah, thanks for coming out tonight. <clears throat> Tonight's uh, talk will be on, on being a disciple of the Buddha's servant. Um, Buddha's servant is a way to translate the name of my teacher, Buddha Dasa. Dasa means slave or servant which is a name he took when he uh, left the career path of a bright young monk and uh, dropped out of monk school in Bangkok. I'm, I'm cutting corners so that I don't have to explain too much. Uh, he dropped out of what an ambitious young monk would be doing and went back home, moved into abandoned temple, and did a lot of cool stuff, and which led to him becoming a very important teacher in Thailand and well-known in various ways outside Thailand as well. I found out about him early on in my Peace Corps experience, which was in Thailand. A friend came across a book of his in a used bookstore, lent it to me. Another friend and another friend gave me books, and which were in English. This was before I read Thai very well. And as my interest in Buddhism, Buddhist practice, and meditation grew, he was somebody I had an eye on. And then when I took the opportunity that's available to men in Thailand and somewhat women, though it's definitely not equal opportunity even today. I took the opportunity to be a monk, which in Thailand is a cultural temporary thing. 
if you want. And so I went to stay at his monastery. And something, many things happened that I didn't expect. One, I remained a monk for 19 years. I thought I'd do it for three months. <laughs> and then come home and go to grad school. So that, but uh, I didn't, ex I did not expect this either, but I really liked it, felt comfortable, challenged, enjoyed life in a forest monastery. Second, I really hit it off with Ajahn Buddhadasa. Personalities clicked, his and mine. And I was 27 at the time, he was 79. And then third, some things had been happening where the monk who succeeded him as abbot had started monthly meditation retreats for foreigners. And I arrived with language skills. I grew up in America, so I spoke a certain form of English relatively well, Chicago style. And I was pretty good at Thai after five years of living there. And I started translating uh, in various ways, which became quite a rich opportunity for me. And so I ended up with a teacher, which in the traditional model meant I was a disciple. Maybe a word that doesn't get used as much here in the States, but I and other Western monks, like disciples of Ajahn Chah, we used this word, and it was comfortable enough. Though now when I say it, yeah, I, no, I, I don't hear Americans speaking of being a, a disciple of the various Vipassana teachers and so on. So tonight, uh, that was kind of the lead-in to how I became a disciple of a well-known and, at that time, very important monk, teacher, uh, reformer of Thai Buddhism, shaker up of a variety of things in Thai society, a, a lightning rod for orthodox um, criticisms. He wasn't always orthodox, nor was he always unorthodox. And I had the great privilege to find myself in, in that position. So I've uh, often I've been reflecting on this in recent months, and that led to today's title. 
driving up here from Liberation Park, we're a little over three hours away, it occurred to me that the situation of people who come to places like Common Ground or who go on Vipassana retreats, perhaps it's unusual that folks would would have a teacher and uh, develop a teacher, or as the Chinese say, master a disciple relationship. Maybe they do more of that in Tibetan uh, forms of practice. So I don't know. I'm just guessing that this might be unusual. But again, for me, it's that was the part of the container for how I got my basic and advanced Buddhist training and education. Now, there's a, a twist to this that I should mention. It's a little uh, ironic that Ajahn Buddhadasa accumulated many disciples because he, he did not have that sort of relationship with a particular teacher. The way um, there were other monks, and he also credits his mother a lot, who had big influences on him. But he himself did not have one primary guiding teacher, whereas somebody like me ended up having him in that role. Instead, when when he left the sort of what I partially tongue-in-cheek called the career path, and it it's actually not an unfair way to put it, and moved back to an abandoned temple and started doing what he called his experiments in Buddhism. He, he didn't have a teacher around to guide him. And his idea, partly because the career path he dropped out about he dropped out of wasn't really about taking the Buddha's teaching that seriously. There, of course, were pockets of seriousness here and there, but the career path was more about learning the Pali language and advancing uh, into a administrative position, more about doing rituals and ceremonies. But he had started to read the, uh, the suttas, the collection of discourses attributed to the Buddha. And he kept reading stuff. And then he'd look around at what was going on and said, wait a minute, there's, there's a lot of incongruence. And, and there was a lot of other things going on that I don't need to get into. So he dropped out, 
moved home and but didn't have a teacher. So he decided, and this was part of taking the name Buddha Dasa, that the Buddha would be his teacher. Now, unlike uh, one of some of the currents going on in uh, modern Buddhism, this wasn't do-it-yourself, you know, make up the Buddha according to what feels good or one's personal opinions. So for him, this involved really serious study of the suttas. He had learned enough of the Pali language to do that. So he built a little shelter behind a Buddha image in the woods of this abandoned temple. Abandoned meant overgrown by not quite jungle, but kind of jungly woods. And there wasn't a decent building there, so he made kind of a lean-to behind the Buddha. And he, he did a lot of reading, lived alone, practiced a lot of silence, did some ascetic practices, meditated a lot. And these were his ongoing experiments. And then ever after that, he considered the Buddha through the recorded teachings to be his teacher. And then so actually someone who was a student of his was regularly encouraged, don't take me as your teacher. Um, let me help you take the Buddha as your teacher. One reason I felt it could be useful for others to talk about being the disciple of somebody like Ajahn Buddhadasa is when one grows into that kind of relationship and for it to happen, you know, depends on a lot of things that we personally may not have control over. I met people wandering around Thailand and Asia looking for teachers. I met plenty of people who found teachers that they were comfortable living with or studying with, training with, meditating with for a number of years. And sometimes that would be, you know, set the course of one's life uh, going, which more or less happened to me. And then others never found that person. Uh, I won't try to psychoanalyze why that could be. But in, in my case, it had to do with things I already touched on, personalities meshing. Uh, being willing to put up with the other disciples and students. And this was a largely male environment, so male competitiveness and one-upmanship happens in Thailand, too. Um, maybe as an American, I brought a different flavor of that. 
or maybe even more. But uh, I saw some of my Thai friends doing stuff too. So that was, if you wanted to be somebody's student, you had to put up with the other students. And if you wanted to be the best student, then, then it could get a little weird. <laughs> so, but that's part of the uh, game and learning to outgrow it. But also, if the relationship really uh, starts to touch one, one of the pieces is um, and I'll, I'll try to explain it from my experience, but I think this was common, that when you find someone you really feel can give you important guidance, not just in you know how to meditate or this or that, but help one discover what life is about, help one make big changes in one's life, uh, reorient one's life. In this case, around Buddhist training, Buddhist study, Buddhist practice. Uh, when that happens, things like gratitude are become strong. And with that is a wish to serve. Of course, that's talked about, too. So if you don't think of it on your own, uh, others are mentioning it. And that's actually something Ajahn Buddhadasa downplayed. But I had also visited uh, the International Forest Monastery started by disciples of Ajahn Chah. And the service towards the teacher was very explicit there. And I found it inspiring. And bowing to the teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa wasn't much for that. Um, but he tolerated it when, when I and others did it. So certain things start happening in emotionally. And to be honest, I was pretty clueless about that. It was happening. It doesn't mean I really noticed it happening. I was more into the ideas and meditation and being a good monk and uh, various activities. It took me years to really look back and notice the emotional side of all this. And maybe I'm still still learning and figuring that out. So when those things um, happen, gratitude, an interest in service, plus Ajahn Buddhadasa was a, considered a very important teacher in Thailand, especially for intellectuals. And he had really shaken up the way 
what's called Theravada Buddhism was understood in Thailand. By the time I arrived, when he was 79, uh, most of that had already occurred. This was the end of his life. And so people were very keen to hear his lectures. And I was, I was around hearing all kinds of talks about the Buddha's teaching which was primarily what Ajahn Buddhadasa's life work was, was to go back to the early record and try to dig out what the Buddha was about and scrape away layers of commentary, which he felt had confused a number of teachings and issues. Of course, those who were attached to later interpretations didn't always appreciate it when he pointed out in various ways, sometimes with a sense of humor, sometimes a bit um, uh, with a bit of a sharpness that, you know, the Buddha didn't really talk about this stuff you're talking about. And some of the stuff he talked about, you're not talking about uh, emptiness, for one, or dependent core rising, and a number of things. So what I'd like to now get into are some of the things I picked up and structured my life when I lived with him. And because I started translating for him, I was able to meet with him on a regular basis. Also because I was an American who, you know, our kind of ideas about equality, I wasn't intimidated the way most of the Thai monks were, and I had a good excuse. Uh, the translations and then leading monthly meditation retreats. And so through hearing the talks, through conversations, through reading, through practice, there were key elements that began to structure what I was doing and the way I was trying to reshape my life. And I'd like to talk about some key elements of it. I'll start with something I heard him point out fairly often, which was, if you'd like to understand what somebody understands, you would do well to live the way they lived. And he was talking about the Buddha. So if you'd like to understand or realize what the Buddha realized, he, Ajahn Buddhadasa suggested 
doing what one can to live like the Buddha uh, would increase one's odds of, of understanding what the Buddha understood. Now, seeing that here today, after driving up uh, I-94 in a Toyota, listening to NPR, I don't know, maybe that sounds like a bit of a stretch for a lot of us to live modern Americans with all our stuff and technology and economic baggage to live, live like a Buddha. But when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, living in a forest monastery, uh, back in, that was the mid-80s, Thailand's economic boom wasn't that big of a boom. So it, it sounded more plausible, especially living in the woods without uh, very, very simple accommodations, didn't need heating and insulation and winter clothing and boots and hats and mittens. Uh, didn't need a car. Having a radio or tape recorder was okay. Eventually I had a tape recorder and then later a computer. First one in the monastery, by the way. <laughs> so I'm not sure what I started. But, um, but that stuck with me if, if you want to understand what the Buddha understood, then try to do some things to live more like the Buddha lived. Or I also took it, if I want to have the understanding of my teacher, then live like him. Of course, that was somewhat easy, living in his monastery, the place he had founded, and where he was still alive the first eight, nine years that I was there. But even now, trying to translate that into a, a Dharma refuge in rural Wisconsin, that's in the background, even though we have to deal with things like building code. We can't le legally live, well, maybe we could if, if we wanted to live in tents or something. But um, Wisconsin's got building codes, and there's no Thailand. You could get, they had a rather rugged, but you can get almost anywhere with public transportation, whether it was buses or pickup trucks with benches in the back. We don't have that in Wisconsin. Um, can get a few places by train, but you still got to get to the train. And even the Amish hire English to um, drive them places. But still, how, to me, this is an ongoing koan. How does 
now that I'm back in America, how do we live like, how do I live somewhat like my teacher? What can be applied here? And then referring in some ways back to the Buddha. So with that frame, there were some key things about what Ajahn Buddhadasa taught and lived <clears throat> that I've tried, I try to, to live. And now I'd like to go through. <clears throat> and the way I'm presenting these will be sort of pretty much Ajahn Buddhadasa's style. He thought, he taught in terms of principles. He used that word a lot, the Thai word. Um, that he wasn't always interested in spelling out lots of details. He thought that was for each person to work on their own. But he was very happy to pull out the major principles or Dhamma principles or natural principles from the Buddha's teaching. He tried them out in his ways and then he tried to pass those on to whoever else was interested. And so now I'll be offering some of those Dhamma principles that he drew attention to and that therefore I've been inspired and guided by. The first is a term the Buddha used, Dhammanu Dhamma Patipati. Patipati means walking, traveling, and is the word that we translate as practice. In our cute little phrase, it's to walk the walk. That's pati-pati. Uh, and, but the phrase dhamma-nu-dhamma means practicing dhamma according to dhamma. Here in the States, often practice is a euphemism for meditation. But Dhammanu Dhamma Patipati is broader than that because in the Buddha's teaching, Dhamma practice is about all aspects of life. Some people don't frame it this way, like your job, that's somehow not Dhamma, which to me would be a really depressing thought. And if one's serious about transforming one's life from um, egoism, stress, suffering, and all that to a more peaceful, happy, compassionate life, then all aspects of life would seem to come into play. And the Buddha's teaching 
about Dhamma covered all aspects of life, or covers, because the teaching's still around. So to practice Dhamma according to Dhamma, and then for Ajahn Buddhadasa, the core of Dhamma, it's a term he used a lot, but one core that's appropriate here to highlight is the natural law, which he called it, or natural principle of conditionality, which literally means, um, well, everything happens because of causes and conditions. This was something the Buddha said, a teaching is not Dhamma if it doesn't express conditionality. You know, if you make kind of blanket, one-sided statements, this is right, that's wrong, often it's no longer Dhamma because it's not pointing, it's not exploring causes and conditions. And so uh, a book on this that I'm in the process of finishing is going to be called It All Depends. That's another way of talking about conditionality. Everything is dependent on other things. Nothing is totally independent. And if, if you take this principle on as a guiding influence in one's life, and I, I try to do this, when something happens, if you remember this, if one's mindful of this principle, you start looking past the surface or the immediate ways of thinking and talking about something. If somebody, uh, if you're driving somewhere and another driver exhibits bad behavior, what goes through your head? And how often do you immediately start inquiring what might be the causes and conditions for this behavior? And what are the causes and conditions of my reaction? Beyond, you know, it's easy, okay, the cause, well, that person's a jerk. That's why I'm I'm incensed. Uh, we're we're going to go a little further than that. So, or even questions about how to meditate, where to live. These are questions the Buddha touched on, like, should I live in the forest? Should I live in a village? The Buddha's response was, it depends. And what it depended on was, well, when you live this way, what happens? What are the consequences? And you keep exploring, if I do this, what, what happens? If I behave in this way, if I talk in a certain way. A Wednesday night, a group in La Crosse, we were talking about right speech and gossip. When you gossip, 
Afterwards, how do you feel? If you're talking negative, I mean, gossip has many meanings, but in the sense of if you're talking negatively about somebody behind their back, if you really pay attention, how do you feel? And what develops between you and the people you're gossiping with and what kind of perspective is developed or solidified about the person you're talking about. And then the next time you see that person, how do you see them? Do you start, do you relate to them a little different because of this special information you just got? Um, and so on. So all aspects of life, especially the important ones, and Dhamma practice are subject to the law of nature. That's, that's how Ajahn Buddhadasa understood it. That's how I understand it. Everything is subject to this natural law of conditionality. <clears throat> now another piece of this are closely related in Ajahn Buddhadasa's teaching is the word Dhamma means nature. And it also means natural law, like the law of conditionality I just spoke of. And I'm using his terminology, which can be traced back more or less to early Buddhism. So another theme for Ajahn Buddhadasa was Dhamma is nature. Often we hear Dhamma is the Buddha's teaching. For Ajahn Buddhadasa, that's true, but that's not the deeper meaning of Dhamma. The deeper meaning of Dhamma is nature. And in Buddhism, nature is Dhamma. And so if if you go to refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, if you're orienting your life towards the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and Dhamma is nature, what, what are the implications for that? This was easier in Thai culture because they, didn't, they never really had the concept of human beings as separate from nature. Whereas in European culture, which we inherited, most of us here inherited, you know, humanity is somehow different from or above or has a right to dominate nature. Not that Buddhists haven't done that in various ways, but at least uh, conceptually, that's, there's not really a place for that in Buddhist teaching. So Ajahn Buddhadasa liked to stress, Dhamma is nature, nature is Dhamma. And therefore, it's good to have as much interaction as you can with nature. His advice was to live intimately with nature. 
that's one reason he left Bangkok, which, and I'm talking 1932 when it wasn't what it became uh, 50, 60 years later or now, to move back not to the village in the middle of the village or the village temple, but to move back to an abandoned temple on the edge of the woods. There were mangrove forests very close by. Later, he moved his place to um, an even bigger area of woods and so on. Now, I realize most of you live in a modern city. But still, the principle, if it's valid, then it remains valid that if we want to understand nature, if that's an important part of Dhamma and how nature works, it would be good to build into our lives ways to be close to nature. This is partly what we're trying to do at Liberation Park, perhaps uh, the project being talked about here to build a retreat place would be would include elements of this. But I'm also thinking backyards, urban parks, community gardens, any ways that we can make work in our lives. But back then, for me, it was, yeah, live in, live in a forest and let the mosquitoes bite you. <laughs> in Wisconsin, letting the ticks bite us, we don't have that many mosquitoes at Liberation Park most of the time, but we do have ticks. Uh, they weren't too bad this past year. So, um, you know, one has to be intelligent about it. You can pick them up and move them. But living intimate with nature. Now, of course, we're also interested in the inner nature or what much later Ajahn Buddhadasa called the inner ecology. He was talking to ecologists and sure, it's great to conserve the outer ecology, but we also need to understand and conserve the inner ecology. And he was basically saying we need to meditate. We need to be able to settle, calm, and clarify our minds if we're going to see both what's going on inside, but what goes on around us. So part of, for me, being a disciple of Ajahn Buddhadasa is trying to build closeness to nature into my life, which is a challenge because I'm easily seduced by computer screens and the internet. So I've made some
progress on that recently in uh, stepping back from all that. As one explores uh, these kind of themes, a third principle that Ajahn Buddhadasa almost made into his mantra is the Buddha's response to a question by a group of um, some fairly wealthy lay uh, Brahmins went to the Buddha, some might have been merchants, they went to him and said, look, we're busy, we have money, we have nice homes, big families. Tell us briefly <laughs> what your teaching is. I've had this, you know, you, Santi Karo, you've got to have an elevator speech. Well, this is even better, four words, sabe damanalang abhinivesaya. That was the Buddha's response. Sabe Dhamma means all Dhammas, all phenomena, all things, everything, if you will. Nalang Adna. Abhinivesaya literally is to bury your mind in. Um, or it's the root of it means something like dwelling, but it's about don't let your mind get stuck in anything which Ajahn Buddhadasa's usual translation of it was, nothing is worth clinging to. And he'd often add, as me and mine. That's not in the Buddha's original quote, but from elsewhere, it's clear that the, in the Buddha's teaching, the primary thing that gets clung to that causes trouble is me and mine. Notions of me and mine, our sense of this is me, this is mine, which then creates others and them and theirs and all forms of other kinds of clinging and attachment. So if, if one takes Ajahn Buddhadasa as one's teacher, this then becomes central. And then practice is about actively exploring how clinging happens, meditating, noticing clinging occurring. Notice when thoughts of me and mine arise. Notice when we get possessive about stuff. Notice what we identify with as this is me, this is my opinion. We might have opinions, we may not in our mind say my opinion, but over time you start to notice there are certain perspectives that have solidified a bit and we hold on to them. And one of the easy ways to notice when you're clinging to opinions is when somebody else calls that opinion stupid or disagrees or expresses a 
com, you know, an opposite opinion, and we start, or at least I start getting a little worked up and feel I have a duty to set them straight and maybe get into an argument about it. So taking very seriously this proposition. Now, I never took it that this was um, a kind of dogmatic truth. The Buddha said it. You should believe it. But I was putting a lot of trust in Ajahn Buddhadasa and by extension the Buddha. So, okay, we'll give this one a shot. And... I confess there's still clinging in my life, but at the same time, when I've examined it and noticed clinging happen, every time I'm in a conflict, and I mean unnecessary conflict, I don't mean disagreements, you know, the normal stuff, but when there's an unnecessary conflict on clinging to something. Maybe the others involved are too. Whenever I'm worried about something, there's some clinging to how the future should be, how I want the future to be. I've clung a lot to ideas of how society should be. Um, gotten angry about how society actually is. Uh, felt guilty about my mistakes and so on. So when I've paid attention, been mindful, investigated, I've been able in many cases to say, yep, it, so far it makes sense. Nothing is worth clinging to as me or mine. And yet, there are areas of my life where there's still clinging. Um, and so I'm still exploring. Another piece that I'd like to bring up to shift because uh, I've kind of given these major teaching principles that were very central. But something else that I've touched on, I'd like to highlight further, is what Ajahn Buddhadasa called simple living. Uh, early on, one of his, way before I got there, one of his mottos was, simple living, high thinking. High thinking means have aim high. Which, by the way, in when he was starting out, the average Thai Buddhist did not take Nibbana seriously. Which would be like a Christian not taking God seriously. Um, 
the Buddha has stated in very clear terms, his whole teaching is about freedom from suffering, the end of suffering. And that can be understood in various ways. And it had become common in Thailand and most Buddhist countries, and maybe um, among people doing somehow connected with Buddhist practice here in the States, that the end of suffering, that's, you know, that's, I'm not going to try to explain the reasons or rationalizations, but a lot of people keep that as at arm's length. Uh-huh. So part of Ajahn Buddhadasa's work was to take Nibbana and other core teachings of the Buddha, some of which I've mentioned seriously. That also meant um, re-exploring, revaluing Nibbana in a way that appeared more accessible, rather than the version of, you know, after many, many lifetimes, you'll be enlightened kind of thing which was a more standard understanding there. So that's the high thinking or the high aspiration, what, what in Mahayana Buddhism is called bodhicitta, to seek full awakening for the benefit of all beings. Ajahn Buddhadasa didn't quite use that language, but he was more or less on board with that. But with the highest aspiration, he advocated living simply. And he had a little verse that expressed this. Sleeping in a pigsty, bathing in a ditch, eating from a cat's bowl, listening to the mosquitoes sing. If you wanted to come live at Suanmok, the Garden of Liberation, that where he lived, that's kind of how you, you lived. The pigsty, there wasn't actual pigs, but um, huts scattered around the woods that were maybe 10 feet by 8 feet with a porch and um, a cleared area and woods around it. Really kind of a pretty nice campsite, but instead of a tent, uh, a wooden structure on stilts makes it safer from snakes and scorpions and a tin metal roof sleeping in a pigsty. In America, if we sleep in a pigsty, it means something else, like me, I'm a slob, so there's stuff. It's another thing I'm working on. It was a lot easier not to have a mess when I lived there. There was no place to accumulate it all. Having a small, simple, easy to care for place, 
bathing in a ditch. That was, it wasn't quite a ditch, but a creek. And the Thai word for cool could be ditch, creek. Um, eating from a cat's ball, by which he meant the monk's begging ball. And listening to the mosquitoes sing, being close to nature, being not too isolated from the elements. You could get in out of the rain, especially during the monsoons. And mosquito nets were OK. It was OK if you heard them sing outside your mosquito net. But um, anyway, that's the way he expressed it. As I've already said, and so I won't say more, living simply can be a challenge. But within the American context, and with some eye to global warming, climate change, this is something we uh, keep asking ourselves about at Liberation Park. fourth piece, which has become big in my life and the work I do, is as it's grounded in what I said earlier, how Ajahn Buddhadasa pretty much took the Buddha as his teacher. And as he started doing that, he realized that the traditional interpretations that had been enshrined in later commentaries, in his reading at least, often seemed to miss the point or even obscure the Buddha's early message. And there are a few important examples of this. Uh, I mentioned the book I've been finishing. It's about depending core rising. And in the traditional understanding, this explains how rebirth happens from lifetime to lifetime. Even though there's nothing explicit about that in, in the actual teaching. Although you will find translations where that's read, <clears throat> read in. But like the word birth appears, but never the word rebirth. Ajahn Buddhadasa's understanding is the kind of birth the Buddha is talking about happening many times each day. So he took it more to be the rebirth of ego. And that that was the primary issue. Now, whether you agree with that or not, his method was to read the suttas, the Buddha's discourses, using the Buddha's discourses. What he was taught as a young monk was, you can't understand that stuff. Read the commentaries. Or nowadays, it's you know, we're reading 
the modern commentaries often based not on the early teaching, but on teachings of a hundred years ago, which are based on often something maybe a thousand years after the Buddha. If Ajahn Buddha's Dasa's thesis is correct and there's mounting scholarly evidence that in many cases it's true, not all cases, but some important ones, uh, it would be good to try to get back to the early stuff if, like him, you want to take the Buddha as your teacher. Now, there's a diff another meaning of Buddha I'll get to in a moment. But in terms of teaching, he, he had the principle of reading the discourses with the discourses, meaning instead of taking a later interpretation, look around in other discourses to find what a passage that might appear obscure means. This is not um, such a new thing anymore. It's being done a lot nowadays. But 50 years ago, or even 30 years ago, this was pretty radical. By the way, radical comes from the word roots. So it means going back to the roots. And at the end of his life, he called it digging diamonds from the tapitika, the three baskets of um, suttas, monastic discipline, and so-called abhidhamma. That there are nuggets of great value to be found. And if, if one would like the Buddha to have the Buddha guide one's practice and life, the approach he advocated and I, I try to follow is digging around for those diamonds. Now, the flip side of that is what we could call the Buddha within. There's a term in early Buddhism, Buddha's seed. The seed of awakening is in all of us. And so there's the teaching derived from this particular human being we call the Buddha. But there's the capacity for awakening. Buddha comes from the word to waken. That's the literal root. And so the potential for awakening is, seems to me, in all of us. And so the to feed that potential using the, the legacy left behind by that particular Buddha. The last thing I'd like to bring up tonight is that as I said it near the beginning, if one becomes a disciple, 
or let's say a really committed student, then service is uh, the wish to serve tends to grow in us. There are places where the Buddha advocates, uh, he used the word puja, which is often translated worship. And he said the, the best way to worship me is to practice. It's called patipati puja. Um, offerings and that stuff was of secondary value. So that in this tradition is the, the ultimate service to a teacher is to practice what they taught. Easier said than done. Um, when you, if you live with a famous teacher at the end of their life, you'll see people coming for all kinds of reasons. And so it's not always obvious that you serve this teacher you say you respect by practice. But that's, that's the ultimate practice, or the ultimate service. And some of what I've talked tonight shapes, shapes that aspect of service, but there's there's room for other forms of service. Ajahn Buddhadasa set up a place where people could come to live, study, practice, and it's to some extent just find peace of mind. There were lots of beautiful, quiet corners. People who were stressed out could just go sit there for a few hours and chill. And that needed taking care of. So one way to serve was to help take care of this and to make it available. I'm sure at Common Ground there are, there are plenty of parallels for that kind of service. Or because Ajahn Buddhadasa gave many talks and there are people interested in getting recordings or reading that was another form of service. And I was encouraged by somebody else to translate, and which I continue to do fitfully as another form of service. And actually, to be finishing a book uh, is uh, a source of great joy for me. It's very satisfying to be finishing, but it's also very joyful that uh, the topic on depending core rising, that I feel this book will express in ways that uh, most Americans are unfamiliar with. American students of Buddhism, American Buddhist meditators. And so I feel I'm serving my teacher, and I hope he's right that we're serving the Buddha in uh, making this available in English. By the way, it should be out next spring. Uh, 
And one last thing I'll say in under the heading of service is Ajahn Buddhadasa described his work in terms of three wishes. Or the, the Thai word could be translated resolution, like New Year's resolutions. The first was to help others understand the core of their religion. He started among Buddhists, but over time he had Christian, Muslim, Hindu, and uh, Marxist students. And so he expanded it to, to help people not be dabbling with the, just the superficial aspects of religion. Those can have their place, ritual, um, Buddha images, stuff like that. But to help people not remain on the superficial level and understand the core of their tradition such as nothing is worth clinging to as me or mine. And he dedicated his life to that. The second wish was, or resolution, was to work for mutual good understanding among religions. It was his belief that until religions of different kinds cooperated, that humanity would uh, pretty much stay mired in conflict, competition, and all kinds of destructiveness. Now, I realize there are many who critique religion as causing wars and so on. And that's, that could be an honest debate. But Ajahn Buddhadasa's perspective was genuine religion. If you understand the core of Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, etc., is absolutely crucial for humanity getting our act together. He wasn't aware of climate change the way we're aware now. But he was aware of uh, the Thai environment being destroyed increasingly in his lifetime. And he felt that only through cooperation among all the religions, and each religion getting its act together, and then religions collectively getting their act together, that would be essential for humanity, humanity having a chance. And nowadays, he would almost for sure frame that in terms of survival, given what science is, is saying. And then his third wish was individually, collectively, in various ways to work together to drag humanity out from under the power of materialism.
Now, he understood materialism in a certain way, which is to give value to things as primary importance, um, let money run one's life, dictate everything. So it was his way of summing up a lot of the problems in the world and a lot of the suffering. That when we are slaves to materialism, we're going to have a mess. And so personally, his work or those who take this on, the personal work is to disentangle ourselves, which is an ongoing daily practice. And then collectively work not only just for ourselves, but our species. No one person's going to do that alone, but the, the high thinking I referred to was in his way, he, he had a vision which wasn't to convert everybody to Buddhism or his understanding of Buddhism, but to do what he could to get all of humanity free of greed, hatred, delusion. So these are some of the core pieces that I um, picked up living with, listening to, conversing with Ajahn Buddhadasa that I work with here living in America and still working on those three wishes as well. And so um, you may not take him as your teacher, guru, or whatever, but the broad uh, message of this is if you do have the fortune of finding a teacher who can give you good guidance, or a group of teachers. There's, there's a whole, uh, a whole path of commitment where one really listens and really takes to heart and is willing to shape one's life. At least keep working on it. So I'll conclude, and we go till nine. And, and we could also spend the last ten minutes with tea and treats if um, people want to ask questions there, or if there are any original questions, we can. Are you re re recommending one of those options? Let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> open field, and, and but it will probably be short. So. Okay. And there will be tear treats yes. either way? Yes. <laughs> okay. So if there's any quick questions, we've got 10 minutes. 
Otherwise, if you're hungry or thirsty. <laughs> you mentioned Nirvana. Am I right in thinking that um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa thought that there were sort of moments of Nirvana that a person could have um, when they're free of the ego as opposed to more thinking that the sort of way that um, you should get into screen entry and sort of a hierarchy, but that people could actually have this experience as part of their daily lives? Yes. He called them various ways. And I won't give all the scriptural references, but the idea of Nibbana as something in the distant future has some validity, perhaps. But the Buddha's most frequent description of Nibbana is the end of greed, hatred, delusion. So any moment when mind, heart, consciousness is free of greed, hatred, delusion. That's a little Nibbana. And Ajahn Buddhadasa's challenge people to watch for the little Nibbanas that happen every day. He also called them free samples. <laughs> because you don't have to pay for them. This was when modern marketing was coming to Thailand. You'd get the little tube of toothpaste or whatever. Well, Nibbana, it'll happen even if you aren't looking or interested. You mentioned the advanced training, and you're mentioning uh, Nibbana. What was this method of advanced training in a nutshell, since we have those um, did I use that word? I think I did. Um, what did I mean by that word? <laughs> I mean, it's in terms of meditation, he advocated mindfulness with breathing for the most part without, um, without rejecting other forms. But that was what he had done and taught the most in terms of meditation. But another perspective on advanced training would be uh, using the dependent core origination teachings. Uh, he summarized all of that. The core of it for him was, if we're foolish at sense contact, we suffer. If you're not foolish at sense contact, you won't suffer. So that if we use teachings like dependent origination, we'll see the importance of being mindful when we see something, hear, smell, taste, touch, remember, think. And if we have that level of mindfulness, which requires training, and there are lots of ways to train it, some of them embedded in monastic life especially forest monastic life. If one has that mindfulness and is investigating, thinking, inquiring, then um, and going along with this would be exploring not-self, emptiness as well. 
then so that would be kind of the the core place to practice. I, I always struggle with the cleaning part. I, I get a handle on it most of the time, but then there's sometimes when it seems like it's important to clean. And I, and I think of, for instance, historically, I mean, the war in Iraq being against that war seemed the proper thing to cling to that idea. Or I think of the current issue of gun control kind of issue. And I guess I have some opinions about that. And it's kind of like just totally letting go of that some, some, somehow seems irresponsible. Or, I'm not sure how to struggle to handle that with cleaning. Well, that's clearly an opinion. It's something I hang on to. Right, right. Um, it really helps to remember clinging to me and mine. And so often, like the way you phrase letting go, Letting go is letting go of the me and mine. The middle way is... So there are a lot of things in life that might be a wise commitment. And to embark on that commitment, and the Pali word for that is samadana, to undertake, and that's linguistically the opposite of upadana, clinging. So to in fully engage in something without hanging on to it is me and mine. And so, say, working for climate change, or sorry, working to mitigate climate change and start to um, keep the whole system from falling apart. If I could think of good reasons why that would be worth time and energy. But as soon as me and mine creeps in, you'll see some nasty business creeping in. Like us, like anger, even hatred at those deniers. Because then they're selves and they're bad. And then, and I'm good because I'm, I'm more enlightened or something. So that stuff will creep in. So it's letting go of me and mine. It's, you know, it's easy if you think in terms of food or basic sanitation, taking care of the body. Letting go doesn't mean not eating. It means letting go of me and mine, craving and clinging. Um, one question about his teaching you didn't bring up, uh, that you didn't bring up, he was also a poet. Mm -hmm. And like I remember this, to paraphrase one one's writing, I remember that I was talking with sort of, when something like uh, birds see not the sky, uh, worms see not the earth, fish see not the sea, people see not the world. 
first of all, um, that was a traditional Thai saying that he repeated a lot, but it wasn't one he came up with. But yeah, he wrote a lot of Dhamma verses. And so it was one of, he was um, an innovator in how to teach Dhamma. Writing verses was, is common, lots of, that was common among many Thai monks and Buddhist teachers. But he did, he did some other stuff. He was one of the first, probably the first Thai monk to do slideshows. And um, some of his verses were written to go on the walls of a building called the Spiritual Theater, where there was copies of Buddhist art from around the world and verses to go with it. Some very traditional, some he wrote. So for him, it was a way, you know, because, you know, not everybody's going to write, read these 400-page books or listen to two-hour lectures. So it, at least give nuggets of ethical guidance or inspiration. It's all part of like the folk Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he tried to do that with, um, like, clinging to me and mine. He, he was pretty good at concocting phrases that would stick in people's memories and be fairly easy, easily understandable, like his translation for thusness. Um, and there's a Thai phrase that's a little bit like, that's just how the cookie crumbles without the negative overtones. And he used that for thusness, whereas if you say thusness, what are Americans going to make of that, even though it's an accurate translation? So he had this little phrase that people could go, oh, that's what it means. And it was... Um, it was accurate enough that it wasn't misleading people and yet accessible. So he put a lot of thought in, into that. Do you ring the bell or do we just? Yeah, why don't we just ring the bell? Let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.